So, we've been going through inductive Bible study. Last week, we started, we started going into... Yeah, let's start with prayer. <laughs> Just so excited. Father, I thank you for this day and for bringing us here this morning to, to worship you, to study your word. Father, I pray that you'd be with those who are not here with us this morning, for those who are traveling. I pray that you would be with them, that you would grant traveling mercies and safety. I pray that you'd, pray that you'd be with me this morning, that the words that I speak would be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, as we started our section on observation, we started with looking at the benefits of different translations, why different translations may say different things. Um, and we also began to ask about, you know, asking... And we started... We started with considering how to ask the right questions of the text. Um, and, you know, going through, if you have your handout from last week, you can see there are ten different, uh, a list of ten different considerations of questions to ask of the text in order to, to be able to get the most out of the text. That's not to say that there are bad questions, but there are some questions that are more useful than others. Um, Today, we're getting into how do we read the text with discernment? And really, when we talk about discernment, what we're talking about is, is how to read the text with a discriminating eye. That is, how do I read the text and tell what terms, what words, what phrases of the text carry the meaning of the text and what words or phrases are more peripheral? This is kind of where we start doing our triage of the text. You know, what, where's the meaning of the text here? Because otherwise, if we don't do that, we can get bogged down in asking some not, going back, we're not asking terribly helpful questions. You know, if we're, if we're getting bogged down on a word or a phrase where there's really not the primary meaning of the text, we actually can end up missing the whole meaning and not asking helpful questions. So when we really, like I said, when we're talking about reading with discernment, we're really talking about reading with a discriminating eye to be able to figure out, like I said, the words or the phrases that carry the primary importance versus those that don't really carry the primary meaning of the text. And if it'll let me move forward here. So, like I was saying, to, to effectively study a passage of Scripture, we must be able to identify the significant terms or phrases. That's not to say that we somehow believe that these other words that aren't of primary significance are somehow wrong or have error in them. We believe that all Scripture is inerrant and inspired by God. But we also recognize that it's impractical to study all the words with the same degree of rigor. Not every word requires the same degree, you know, not every word, every phrase requires the same degree of rigor to understand the text.
I'm gonna switch over. This this clicker is not behaving. I I think I may be slightly out of range on the on the the clicker. So it may pull up here. It may not. All right. Ah. So keeping in mind. We're not, we're not at the point of interpreting the text yet. We're still at the point of observing the text. So at this point, really what we're doing by exercising a discerning eye is we're identifying words and phrases that are going to require extra attention. That we're, we're beginning to triage and identify where are we going to focus our rigor of the text. You know, where are we going to put in our our primary energy into the text and figuring out what this text is communicating. We call these words, you know, words that we've identified as requiring further study, we can call that, we would call them non-routine terms. Now, non-routine doesn't mean these aren't words that we haven't seen before. Some of them may be. Some of them may be completely new words or phrases that we're not familiar with. But many times, they're words that we've heard before, but maybe they're being used in a way that we're not familiar. Or we're simply identifying, I think the primary meaning of the text is in these words, in these phrases, and this is how I know that. So where we're really going to be going into, how do we identify the terms that are non-routine? What we would call significant, the, the significant terms of the text. There's six different types of non-routine terms. There's what we call contextually crucial terms, that these are words or phrases that we may be familiar with, but given their context and how they're used, the primary meaning of the text is carried in those words or phrases. There may be theologically profound terms. These are often words that really only make sense within within a theological context. They, they'll communicate some type of theological significance. Um, one of the words, it's a word we don't often use, but it's one of those really meaty theological words, propitiation. That carries a huge significance theologically, but it's, maybe it's not a word we're familiar with. Historically particular terms. These may be words that are cultural in significance. Uh, they may be geographical. So maybe they're, they're countries, empires, people groups that don't necessarily exist anymore, but they're significant to that particular text. Um, maybe they're referring to different religious practices. You know, to understand a lot of the texts in the Old Testament, a lot of texts in the Old Testament refer to Baal or the worship of Baal. Well, I don't know of any people groups today that actively worship Baal, but to understand those and why that's so important, maybe having some type of understanding of the significance of that practice in the region would be helpful to understanding that text. Words that are exegetically or textually uncertain. These are words that, within their context, there may be some difficulty figuring out what the meaning is here. 
Um, these are often words that you'll see it reading different translations of the Bible, and we'll get into some of these um, as we get into that a little more in depth. You'll see different translations may translate those words differently. Um, and maybe not only do they translate them differently, but maybe sometimes they translate it almost seemingly oppositely because the meaning of that word is very contextual. There can be figurative terms. And then symbolic terms. And a lot of times the figurative and the symbolic terms go together. They're different. That's why they're, we, they're separated out. But to understand these, or at least to understand that this isn't necessarily literal language, um, when the text calls or describes, you know, God is a rock. Well, that can be very figurative or symbolic language. That's not necessarily saying, you know, God is literally a rock on the ground. Well, yeah, that, to, to, read, to read that overly literally, well, there are some theological implications there that can be quite problematic for the rest of Scripture. Um, so we, we understand that as figurative or symbolic language. But it oftentimes, like I said, figurative and symbolic terms are often communicating literal truths. You know, a literal reality. So we have to, but to understand the text, we have to recognize when figurative or symbolic language is being used. When we talk about contextually crucial terms, these are terms that in a particular context convey the primary argument or meaning of the passage. By themselves, these words may be fairly routine words but if you're trying to give a summary of the passage, you're not really going to be able to give an effective summary of the passage without using those terms. So we, that's, if there's a rule of thumb that we would follow of identifying, is this contextually crucial? Can I summarize the passage without using that word or phrase? If you can't, that's probably a pretty darn important word or phrase to understand or to know what that means to understand it. Ways that we can identify, because there are some fairly predictable patterns that show this is probably important in the text. First and foremost, repetition. If that word or the concept is repeated throughout the text, it's probably pretty important to know. There's prob probably most of the meaning of that text is going to be in that word or phrase. Sometimes we see the, the words used in a compare and contrast. So in the text, we're going to take a quick look at, I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time because it's a longer passage. Um, we see the comparisons between knowing versus the weak conscience, building up versus stumbling. So there's, there's contrast there. Well, maybe we need to know what that means. Paul takes a lot of time in putting that putting that down. Um, words or ideas that are used in the introduction or concluding sections of a passage probably are more important 
or at least carry more meaning. You know, think about when we write. A lot of our meaning, especially when we're getting to the concluding section, we put a lot of the meat in that summation. Well, Scripture is very similar. Or use in a transition. I'm moving from one idea to another. Well, there can be meaning, important words and phrases in that transition. So words, that are words or phrases that are used in these particular ways are usually contextually crucial to understanding the text. The example that I was talking about, if you want to open to 1 Corinthians 8, it's a longer, it's a longer section. Paul's talking about food being offered to idols. There's, when we look at how do we identify some of these contextually crucial terms? Just a quick, a quick scan of those 13 verses can show that the word know and knowledge are words, is a word or word set that repeats itself very, you know, 1 Corinthians 8 verses 1 through 13. Paul talks about, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, yet he, do, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So we can just see in that first three verses, the word know, known, knowledge that word set pops up, I think by my count, six times in those three verses. That's a lot of repetition. And as we move on down through the text, the word no continues to pop up. Understanding what Paul is talking about when he says knowing, no, knowledge, known, probably would help to understand what Paul's talking about. What is this knowledge Paul is talking about? The compare and contrast as we move on, he says, you know, therefore as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So there's a certain compare and contrast there. We have building up, but then we have being weak, strengthening and weak. So there's a contrast. Well, we probably want to look at that contrast. And we see, we see this repeated through that whole text. So when we talk about contextually crucial terms, there's a lot of contextually crucial terms in that passage. 
to fully understand what Paul is talking about. But there's also theologically profound terms. These would be words and phrases that infer some type of theological significance. They tend to be particular to Bible, to biblical or systematic theology. These are often words that aren't really used outside of that context. We wouldn't necessarily expect the random, you know, the man on the street to know what these words mean. Walk up to anyone on the street, ask them what propitiation means. Probably not going to know. Now, as we know, there was a day and time when that was a word more commonly in usage even in the church. But your average person on the streets isn't necessarily going to know what that word means. And yet, it's a word that shows up in Scripture. Who wants to open up to Romans 3, 24 through 26? Ken, could you open up to Romans 3? Ruth, could you open up to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21? When you're ready. Romans 3, 24 through 26. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Are there any theologically profound terms in that text? Propitiation. Propitiation. <laughs> what are some, is that the only one? Righteousness. Righteousness. What's righteousness mean? Is that a word we commonly use outside of a biblical setting? Righteous, dude. <laughs> not, okay, not since the 70s. <laughs> are there any others? I see redemption. Redemption. Justified. Justified. So there's it. In that two, three verse section, there's at least four. Are there any more? We were a little more familiar with the concept of faith, but that would be faith, another theologically but that's a, yeah, profound word. Scriptural definition of it, anyway. Yes, yeah. So, in that relatively short passage, there's at least five theologically significant terms grace. That, grace, okay, six. Three verses, there's half a dozen. To effectively and accurately understand what Romans 3, 24 through 26 is talking about, it would probably help to have a working biblical knowledge and definition of what those terms mean. Ruth, could you read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are there any theologically profound terms in that passage? What did you see or what did you read or hear? Righteousness? Yeah, what... What does righteousness mean? It would help to have a biblical understanding of what righteousness is. What else? We are ambassadors. Okay. What, is, what, what, what does it mean to be an ambassador of? Does it say ambassador of anything or just? Of Christ. Ah, what is an ambassador of Christ? Sure, that, that would fit the definition. What about reconciled? And that word, reconciled, reconciliation, or reconciling, that's repeated by my count three times in that passage. So not only is it a theologically profound, it's probably also contextually crucial. So we see here there's going to be some overlap between some of these categories sometimes. Well, there's an, there's an accounting understanding of reconciliation is that what Paul is talking about here? Maybe. But, again, do we know for, do we know for certain, off the top of our heads, what, Paul is ta what reconciliation is? Maybe. But to, to effectively understand this text, it's a theologically important term that's repeated multiple times. So, to understand this, we would identify that word or phrase as probably something that warrants more study. And another one that would um, might confuse people if they're not Christians is the very first line, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That would probably confuse creation. Sure. Yeah. What does it mean to be a new creation? Not really a phrase that we use outside of a biblical context. Yeah, sure, to understand what does it mean to be a new creation. Absolutely. That carries a lot of theological significance to it. We probably need, and it's, again, that's also one of those when we go to contextually crucial. That's introduced right in the introduction of that section. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Well, <laughs> it's a theologically significant and contextually significant term. Probably would be good to know what that means. There are also historically particular terms. These would be culturally, geographically, or historically particular words or phrases that may not be understood outside of the world of the Bible. So these might be place names. Jerusalem. Samaria, we may be Beth Afra, 
I had to look that one up, and I forget the reference, but it's there. These are place names that, again, outside of the world of the Bible, we wouldn't necessarily know what that means. Units of measurement. Cubits. Does anyone know what a homer of wheat is? Not off the top of my head. Or what about a talent? Yeah. Oh. I do. That's a denarius. A talent. Well, we we definitely have a a modern use, you know, a cultural usage of the word talent. Something we're gifted at. Well, in the parable of the talents, when he gives them fifteen talents of gold, is that what he's talking about? No. So maybe to understand that, we probably need to know that a talent is a unit of measurement about 15 pounds. I think it's 15. It's a lot. It's a very significant amount. Or certain cultural practices. Crucifixion. We're all familiar with the, the crucifixion of Christ. You nailed to the cross. Do we understand contextual? Do we understand culturally the significance of crucifixion? That does understanding that practice give us a deeper a deeper understanding of what was going on when Christ was crucified? Or Baalism? Can you look like you have something? Aha! So last so last year we canned a homer of green beans. <laughs> Do you think the Amish would get that reference? We're gonna find out this year. <laughs> so yeah, to under to effectively understand some of the particulars of the passages that have these these historically particular terms to them. It would help to know. Now, especially with our units of me- the units of measurement, some translations have already done the legwork and put them into modern, into modern units of measurement, but some haven't. Was a cubit the... Cubit was roughly the elbow to the end of the middle finger. But everyone's Yep. Yep. So, yeah, so some, some translations, I believe the NIV has done a lot of the legwork uh, and translated it into modern units of measurement. The ESV, I believe it shows up in footnotes. Um, so there'll usually be a text note that puts it into modern units of measurement. But if you look at the King James, it is not there. Um, some... Some translations don't have a footnote in the text, but they have a nice handy-dandy chart in the back that, put, that uh, has biblical measurements converted into modern units. But for, for some, especially, like I said, the, one, you know, the parable of the talents, it, 
might be helpful to know what a talent is to maybe fully appreciate that text. Um, who, wants, who wants to open up to Hosea 1.5? Jess, you got Hosea chapter 11, 1 through 5. This text is packed with a number of historically particular terms. Okay. You want to get the mic? <laughs> Hosea, oh, Hosea 11, 1 through 5. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, is that how it said? Okay, Baals, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, Ephraim? Mm -hmm. to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases a yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be, or no, Azria? Assyria. Assyria? Assyria? Oh, okay. Shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Did you hear any historically particular, any cultural, geographical, or historically particular terms in that text? Yup. What are some of them? I mean, there's the geographical, Israel, sure. Egypt, Israel, Assyria. Egypt, Assyria. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. On that one. What about Ephraim? Is that a place? It's one, of the, it's one of the tribes that was in northern oh. Israel, but oftentimes, especially in the prophets, Ephraim is used to refer to all of Israel. Oh. It's, one of, it's more of a poetic reference to all of Israel. So maybe to understand that text, understanding that Ephraim is often used to refer to all of Israel okay. could be quite helpful. So if you didn't know that, as I didn't, it could have been taken literally thinking it was a person's name. Sure. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I'm like, oh, yeah. taught a child. Okay, read verse 3 again. Yet it was I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in, my, in their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I don't understand that one. I didn't heal Lily my daughter to walk. Okay. Well, so right now, so what God is talking about is that in generally in this text that, you know, I brought my children out of Egypt, or out of Egypt I called my son. So he's talking about the Exodus, but also there's a certain foretelling that's considered one of the prophecies referring to um, Christ when they fled Herod to Egypt, out, they came back out of Egypt. You know, I did all of this for my, for my chosen people. I taught them. I taught them to walk. I raised them up like a proud parent. And they've rebelled against me. What about understanding what a yoke is? Can that be a culturally particular term? If you're not a farmer, do you know what a yoke is? 
<laughs> what's in an egg? Yeah, no. <laughs> but so understanding some of these culturally, um, culturally or geographically particular terms can help us understand that text a little bit better. Yeah, understanding, yeah, maybe understanding the significance of Baal worship in Israel at that time. That would have been Molech. So, again, this is one of those texts that to understand some of the historically particular terms can give us a deeper insight into the text. Now, sometimes there are exegetically or textually uncertain terms. And these would be words or phrases that, in their context, it's not entirely clear. You know, we talked about last week when Ken was talking about translations. Um, there are certain words and phrases and, and grammar constructions that are fairly straightforward and can only be interpreted or translated in one particular way. And most of, most of Scripture is like that. Most of the underlying Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic texts there really is only one way to, to accurately translate. You could translate it in other ways, but it's not going to make any sense whatsoever. So there's one correct way. But sometimes we run into texts where, and this is some of the difficulties with moving from one language into another, where sometimes based on the context and the usage of the word throughout the scripture, where ultimately the translation committee that translated the text makes their best judgment call. And sometimes the translation goes in different directions. These exegetically, textually uncertain terms are oftentimes only picked up on when you're comparing Bible translations. So if you're just sitting down with the ESV you're not necessarily going to pick up on, oh, there's an uncertain translation here. Sometimes in a footnote it'll be noted, but most of the time it's not. But when you're comparing Bible translations, especially those that have differing translation traditions or philosophies, that's really where you're going to pick up some of these differences. On the back of the handout, I put a chart. The chart did not print terribly clearly, but I do have it here, and eh, that's a little less... It's just a little wide. It's a little wide. Um, but when we talk about English Bible translations, there's kind of a family tree of Bible translations. Some of the earliest Bible translations that we have weren't necessarily translated right from the Greek and the Hebrew. They used the Latin Vulgate that was translated by Jerome in about 400 A.D. So... I have a question about that. Okay. Um, with... And about the point of the Great Bible with Henry VIII, would the Tyndall Bible be... So the, Tyn, the Tyndall Bible was actually one of the primary sources that the translators used for the Great Bible, or what was known... Oh or what was known as the Coverdale Bible. So, oh, I 
you can yeah you can see the tin the Tyndale Bible ultimately gave rise to the Great Bible. Okay. The Tyndale, William Tyndale, who was interestingly enough burned at the stake, but that's a whole different story. Um, but then you've got you have a, a different translation tradition that used the Textus Receptus that was compiled by Erasmus, who decided he wanted to compile um, the biblical, you know, the original language biblical texts. So he went around all around Europe finding the best texts, that Greek texts that he could find. That's the, the Textus Receptus. Now, the Textus Receptus was only composed from about 11 or 12 manuscripts. And he couldn't find a complete text of Revelation, so what he did is he back-translated Revelation from the Latin Vulgate. So, but what we, now the thing is, none of the texts that he compiled were any older than about, 12, about 1200 AD. They were, relatively speaking, they were very late translations, and they come out of, I think uh, Ken made a reference last week to the majority text. I don't want to get too much into that because we're getting into the weeds. But a lot of previous translations, as we can see, even our own English Standard Version, it started out based, the core text that they used was the Revised Standard Version. So I put this up here to make this point. When we're comparing Bible translations, we see over here we have the Christian standard, which was a re, uh, came out of the Holman Christian standard. If I'm comparing the CSB and the HCSB together, I'm probably not going to pick up on these terms that are uncertain because the CSB started with that text. So I probably want to choose something that's out of a different strand. Now, if I compare the CSB to the NIV, I'm going to pick up on some of these terms a little bit better. What's that? Or the King James added. So a lot of times what happened in, the, again, I don't want to go down too much into the weeds, but... There's a reason why, especially, and we see that as a result of, well, there's a different text tradition that the King James comes out of. So when we're picking translations that we want to compare, we don't necessarily want to pick translations that are in the same thread. Where would the NET fall? The NET is actually, would be a whole other line off of it. The, the NET did not start from a base translation. No, it, the NET would come off the yellow. They used the critical text. Got it. Exactly. So, not to, like I said, not to get into a whole debate of which translation is better or worse or, or what have you, but for the benefit of being able to identify different, how different translations may translate uncertain terms, we probably want to pick, compare translations that are coming out of not so much different colors even, but different branches because we'll see some of those terms pop up. It, yeah, it's not going to be so subtle. 
Right, so between the, C, between the Christian standard, the CSB and the Holman Christian standard, they're so close because the CSB started with the HCSB as its base text. And then there were some tweaks and changes here and there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, come in. So above the King James Version, yeah. all those Bibles, I don't know much about them. Um, are they all in English? Like, I don't... They, I don't all, they all are in English. Okay. These are all... Yeah. Right, no, the but Vulgate, the ones that have the people's faces. Yeah, the, all of these are English translations of the scripture. Okay. We wouldn't be able to read it because it's so old. Yeah, the right. Tyndall Bible's written in Middle English. We would not pick up on most of it. Gotcha, so we should start evaluating at like King James Version and down. See, that's that's because I've heard problems yeah. because so King James... Yeah, so there, again, without getting into the weeds, there are different translation camps that some are more adamant that particular translations be used and some are not. Um, and so the purpose of this isn't so much to say this translation is better than this. It's more of when I'm comparing translations. Well, I just didn't know much about, like... Sure. Right. Like, I didn't know if that was a thing, or should we start, like, your common man start at King James? Your average Joe reader, right? Like, where, right. how far can we read? How far back can, can we correct? So how far back could we effectively read? Yeah. Probably not much further back than the Great Bible. And even with great difficulty, because there are even some letters. It's written in modern English, but some of the letters have changed. So, um, sure. Fortunate, what we fortunately. I have one page of a facsimile. Fortunately, most of these exegetically or textually uncertain terms, most of the time, don't carry the primary meaning in most passages. In some, however, it gets kind of interesting. But there's three different types. One is, there's ambiguity. Um, Ken, could you do Hosea 11.12 in the ESV? Got it. And Jess, could you do Hosea 11.12 in the NIV? Yeah, I'll just switch. Okay. Ken, whenever you have it. Hosea 11.12 in the ESV. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Okay. What does the NIV have? Okay. Can, you, can you pass her the mic? Pass Okay. Hosea eleven twelve in the NIV says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, Israel with deceit. And Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Hmm. Completely. <laughs> but the word there is the Hebrew word rud, which means to roam about. 
but we have in the ESV, it's translated in a more positive light, which is definitely one of the translations. But the NIV translates it in a much more negative light. Walks with, walk unruly against. It's one of those textually ambiguous. It's polar opposite. Polar opposite. That's one of those difficulties where in context, that word can be translated multiple ways. And even in context here, it can be translated multiple ways and still make sense. So how do we distinguish the meaning? Larger context. Um, how is Judah portrayed in other you know, further on within that chapter of Hosea can give clue to it. Um, we can consult other translations. How did they translate it? How has this been historically understood? But sometimes it's not always clear. Um, sometimes we have words that are what we call lexical difficulties. How do we just, how do we figure out what this word means? Um, since you already have the NIV and ESV pulled up, Ken, could you look up Ecclesiastes 2.8 in the ESV? Jess, could you look up Ecclesiastes 2.8 in the NIV? I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. What does it have in the NIV? I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers, and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. So we have harem versus concubine. What's the difference between a harem and a the word, Well, the Hebrew word that's translated there is shaddah. It's the only time in the Hebrew Old Testament that that word is used. So, it, well, I have a footnote that says the meaning of the Hebrew word is uncertain. Yeah. And part of that difficulty is that word is not one that's used. It's, this is the only place that it's used, that that word is used in the Old text, Testament. So one of the ways that we figure out, or that translators figure out what does this word mean is they look at how is it used in other places within the Old Testament. Well, for this word, we have nothing to compare it to. And it's not necessarily one that shows up a whole lot outside of the biblical text. So it's, we have a difficulty here because this isn't a word that's used a whole lot. We don't have a lot to compare it to. So it could mean a cheeseburger since it's a desire of a man's heart. <laughs> I mean, logistically speaking, we don't know. Historically and contextually, probably not a cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. But it could mean any number of things, a desire of a man's heart. Like, fill in the blank. In, what is the desire of well, a man's in heart? In context, he's talking about, what does it say just before that word? 
male and female singers. What does it say before that? Before that, uh, uh-huh. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. So there's, there's a certain context of what do kings amass. And there's, also, there's also the context of this is Solomon. Yep. Okay, and, and he had himself a harem. He had himself a harem. So we think about the things, okay, you know, how do we... There, there's a, a number of different ways that we can discern contextually when we understand, okay, who's writing and what's the yeah. context of his life and what were the things that he amassed for himself. And we know, yeah, that's one of the things. But, so. but because yeah. we don't have this word showing up in a lot of places, we don't know with absolute certainty what this word means. We can, we can kind of hit reasonably close. Um, and we sometimes... Well, I just want to say that it's worth, worth noting that even though there's sometimes terms that are you know, exegetically or lexically ambiguous to us, mm-hmm. that does not necessarily mean that we don't understand what the text is communicating. Absolutely. So the text, we, we have an understanding of what this text means. Oh, this guy is amassing all kinds yeah. of things for himself. Maybe we don't know the particulars of what all the things are, but he's amassing these things for himself, and he's trying to find meaning within them, and he's finding himself empty. Yes. So we know what the text means, even if we don't know no. what the particular word is. And that, that's an important thing to know, to note, and I, it's worth repeating. I said it at the beginning. It's worth repeating here. Fortunately, most of these areas where we have these lexical difficulties, where we're not quite certain what this word means, we can, st- we can still understand what the text is communicating. So it's not like we get to this verse in Ecclesiastes and it's this grand biblical black hole of meaning that we have no idea what he's talking about. We have an understanding. Because even if, totally change of gears for a sec, but even if that word meant diamonds, he still amassed himself huge quantities of something very precious, but it still resulted to emptiness. Right. And the last one, sometimes there are textual issues, and this is where I was talking about that sometimes out of different text traditions we can run into issues. Um, Who can, Jess, can you look up John 6.14 in the KJV and John 6.14 and or I'm sorry, 647 in the KJV, and I'll pull up, or who wants to do 647 in the HCSB? I have one right here. 647 in the, in the HCSB. Okay, read it in the King James if you have it. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Okay. He who believeth on me has everlasting life. That's the King James. 647 in the HCSB. I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. Oh, he who believes has life. Believes, yeah. In me is missing. Right. Or so that's, has been added. that's one of those kind of going to what you had brought up. There's words in the King James that doesn't show up because they come out of different text traditions. So the Greek, the Greek texts that were primarily used to translate the King James had the word on me. 
the oldest texts that were used for the Holman Christian Standard and quite frankly a lot of other modern translations, in the older Greek texts that phrase, on me, wasn't there. Does it change the meaning of the text? Some may argue that it does. Well, he who believes, Jesus is saying, well, he who believes, believes in what? Right. So, and yet, again, in context, in context, we're not, it doesn't change the meaning of what Jesus is talking about, the very next verse, I am the bread of life. Right. In context, oh, he who believes on me. Sure. And, Right, and there, there are issues, you know, why, why does the King James have some of these in there? And there's any host of reasons. Sometimes there can be, um, they had memorized another similar passage that had the word on me, and they're going by what they memorized, and, oh, hey, there's an, an insertion there. Right. Sometime, you know, maybe it, right. So, so yeah, so sometimes there can be these textually uncertain words that really only come up, that we really can only identify when we're comparing different translations. But sometimes there's figurative terms. But they're often used to communicate literal truths. Ruth, could you look up Psalm 22? 12 through 15. (laughs) Psalm 22, verse 12 through 15. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am proud. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a post head, but like a pot shirt. I don't know what that is. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Keep going? No, you're good. So there's a lot of very figurative language in there. Now we know this is one of the messianic psalms that when we read this, especially in context of, what, of the crucifixion, we know that some of the words of Christ he, he was quoting this psalm. There's a lot of figurative language in there. My tongue sticks to my jaw. The pot... Yeah. So... The pot shirt? The pot shirt? Like a piece of pottery, it's broken, yeah. it's dry, it's, it's not... Um, he says, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt. There's, it's just... A shattered pot. What strength does a shattered clay pot have? There's no strength. So yeah. that's what he feels like. 
he's describing him, you know, the, David is describing himself as completely worn out. He's at, he's at his end. He is, and yet he's using very figurative language to communicate the extremity of what he's experiencing. Yeah. Is he literally dried up like a potsherd? No. But is that description communicating a literal truth about his condition? Yes. And we can go in, but at this point, really, with identifying figurative terms, we're only really concerned with identifying the figurative language at this particular point. And then we have our symbolic terms. And these are words or phrases that can convey symbolic significance within a context. We don't really have time to go into a lot of these. Um, but we see a lot of these show up in visions, but sometimes they also show up in discourse. Symbolic terms can show up within all the different genres within Scripture. We have to know, or at least be able to recognize that there's some type of significant, symbolic significance to this text. One that I do want to take a look at, um, John 6, 53 through 59. I'll open up. You're already there. You want to read it. Nope. Okay. Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Is Jesus advocating cannibalism? No. Well, that was certainly an accusation that the Romans made against the Christians for justifying their persecution. You know, those, those words right there. But is Jesus advocating cannibalism? No, we know he's not, but he's using very symbolic language to communicate a literal truth. So, so again, you know, as we move through observing the text, you know, our, you know, this process of observing, in order to move on, you know, the, the eyes to see, you know, beginning to understand determining the beginning and the end of the unit itself, being able to identify the terms and fra- you know, the words and phrases within the text that carry the significance and the weight of the meaning is absolutely critical. One, we'll actually accurately understand the one meaning of the text. But two, it's also an efficiency. It saves time because, again, it's not practical to devote the same level of study and rigor to every word that's within a given text. So it's efficiency, but it also helps us identify that one meaning of the text. So with that, let's close in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for this time that we can dig into your word, learn how to study your word, to understand your word, what, what you have communicated to us through your word. We pray now as we go into our time of 
praise and worship that, that the words that we speak, that the praise that we give would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.